Who cares about Watchmen? Episode 4. If you don't like my story, write your own. This week, as usual, we have myself, Neo, from Australia, and Ngiga from England. Both of us longtime fans of the Watchmen comic and the TV adaptation showrunner Damon Lindelof's, uh, well, his recent TV work, at least. And also with us is Miriz from America, who has also read the comic and is also aware that Damon Lindelof exists. And joining this week as well is another American, Nate. Nate, what's your experience with Watchmen and with Lindelof? Yes, I read the Watchmen comics a very long time ago. And so I'm, you know, familiar, but I'm more familiar with the movie. Um, not sure how much that counts for. Uh, and I've seen The Leftovers. I love The Leftovers. So I was very excited when Lindelof was the pick. Yeah, I think that's similar to uh, me and Gig as well. Oh yeah, isn't your girlfriend a um, like first-timer to everything? Y- yes. Yeah. How's, how, yeah, how's that has, going? She has no familiarity with uh, Watchmen. Um, I just got her to watch the movie, actually, but only after the first three episodes, which was probably a mistake. But, <laughs> yeah, no, she enjoys it a lot. Uh, definitely bewildered, but... A lot of the references to the uh, comic and all that are very parenthetical, you know, like they don't really yeah. need, um, and they're doing a good job with the exposition so far. Yeah, yeah, I feel like there there should be more exposition, because whenever there's a little tidbit about the past, it's like, oh, what was that? You know, like, really got to focus on that, because it's obvious that it's all informing uh, every aspect of the show. It's, it's hard to do exposition without it being clumsy, and I think they've done a great job so far. To briefly go over the episode uh, before we start cracking its shell and discussing the delicious eggy innards, this week saw the introduction of Lady True, the Vietnamese-American trillionaire who, in another one of the show's riffs on Superman's origin story, opened the episode by buying a farm and land belonging to two parents, the Clarks, who couldn't conceive right before something from space landed on it. Back in Tulsa, Angela confirms the wheelchair-ridden man, Will Reeves, the boy from the Tulsa massacre sequence that opened the whole show, is her paternal grandfather. She encounters FBI agent and former superhero Laurie Blake from the end of episode 3, who was surprised to see Sister Knight's car drop from the sky. Sister Knight notices Will Reeves' pills, apparently to help him with his memory, are still inside the vehicle. Sister Knight drops off murdered police chief Judd Crawford's KKK outfit, as well as those memory pills at fellow masked cop-looking glasses bunker. She notices and chases an unlicensed illegal vigilante, what are we calling him? Slugman. Raston Warrior Robot. <laughs> we'll stick with Lube Man for now. And he slides himself <laughs> down a sewer grate. Oh, Laurie suspects Lady True's sci-fi hovercraft devices were used to dump Sister Knight's car. And True seems to cooperate with the investigation. But she pushes Sister Knight to think on those memory pills because True is in cahoots with Will Reeves. And both of them speak mysteriously about plans and plots and betrayals, even though they're alone. All these things sure to be elaborated on in future episodes. But meanwhile, in Jeremy Irons' land, he fishes some babies out of a lake. He cooks them up into adult servants. He surveys a massacre of servants, presumably wrought by himself the night previous. 
He catapults some corpses into the sky where they disappear beyond a certain height and he bemoans his apparent imprisonment in the castle and landscape he inhabits, announcing plans to escape. What did we think of all these proceedings? What an episode. And Mirrors, you just watched it, like you just finished it, yes. so what's your immediate impression? <laughs> this is hilarious, I love this show. I know I keep going back and forth, but this is, I mean, it's a lot of fun. Uh, very goofy at times, but very entertaining. A lot of good, uh, you know, weird fucked up imagery. Like, I am, at this very moment, looking at the scene right after the slug man Pennywise is out, and the <laughs> the smear left behind really does look like Dr. Manhattan. I don't know why, but it's great. See, it reminds me of like a, a trail of squid might leave. It reminds me, it looks a bit squiddy to yeah. me. Yeah. A bit Lovecraftian, yeah. <laughs> so to speak. Who do you think Lou Man is? Jumping straight to that question. It's possibly Petey, or maybe Senator Keen. <laughs> What if it's Senator Kane? I would love that, but I, I don't, I doubt it. I have a theory that, um, I, I don't know, now that I've noticed the, uh, Dr. Manhattan smear, I am wondering if maybe there's some significance to Petey looking an awful lot like a pre-accident, uh, Osterman. <laughs> I, mean, I figured she, I just figured she had a type, you know? I mean, yeah, yeah, and also, Laurie does seem to be very hot for Cal as well, and Cal is another character who's frequently speculated to be some form of Manhattan. But yeah, I'm on the, I'm on the, I'm on the Lube Man is Petey train, personally. The figure matches too well. If we're talking Cal, the clue is right in his name, isn't it? Oh god, yeah, um, see, something that recently came up. Um, you might recall that, that if you've been reading the um, extra files and stuff on the website, you might know that the dildo that uh, Laurie was seen using in episode 3 is officially called an Excalibur, basically, as in King Arthur's, King Arthur's sword. And um, someone on Reddit has recently noticed that um, Angela's husband's name is Cal Abar. So, uh, could oh it be god. a clue? Oh. Excalibur? Oh my god. Cal <laughs> <laughs> oh, is basically than... a giant dildo of Dr. Manhattan. I mean, you know, it, it all fits together. Was Cal acting like a bit of a dildo in his uh, little yeah. fedora scene? Yeah, I wasn't sure what to make of that. Usually when you see a show lean heavy into the heaven isn't real, it's meant to juxtapose with religious elements elsewhere, but there wasn't there's not anything like that in the show so far. Uh, Dr. Manhattan is going to be back, I figure, and I think that's what they're going for, is it's sort of a world-building thing, is illustrating how intensely atheist uh, this America is. Mm-hmm. Especially with what's coming up next episode. Cal seems to have some big aversion to lying that Angela kind of lampshaded at the end, so I guess he's just not the type to, um, to mince words. Yeah, I thought maybe that was set up for the lying bit later on, but... Some people have inferred that um, Cal's somewhat uh, kind of matter-of-fact and emotionless kind of uh, account of life and death could be a clue that he's actually Dr. Manhattan, because, you know, only Dr. Manhattan would be an atheist. And obviously I think that's fairly, <laughs> um, fairly flimsy evidence. But it did strike me that the way he phrased it, as in um, speaking of life and death as a bit like a cycle and going over the whole uh, process from before birth to after death, and uh, the idea, the way he phrases it as it being 
um, returning to the same state as before. There is something vaguely Manhattanish about that, if only in the sense that yeah. it recognises like the pure, like atomic sort of uh, reality of you know atoms and so on and so forth. It's it's the sort of thing that he might that you might say if you had that sort of all times happening at once perspective that Manhattan has. So I don't think Cal is Manhattan, but it's a nice nod to that sort of uh, worldview, isn't it? I think. Same. Mm-hmm. And I think what I was trying to get across is I think that the whole that maybe we didn't get that much of that in the original comic, but what they're saying in this series is that sort of everybody sees life that way now. Especially millennials who would have been born post-Manhattan, unlike you know, the uh, boomers in the first book. I, I think yeah. the show k- kind of eggs on these uh, hair-brained <laughs> readings. Like, oh, I, I, I wasn't even gunning for the egg. <laughs> Fine. But, uh, I, I think um, just the kind of mystery boxy reticence to elaborate or expand on certain things, It like with Jeremy Irons' identity in the first two episodes, it kind of demands these crazy readings that, you know, might not be um, logical or even really keyed into ideas the show is doing sometimes but when you're making so many things mysteries it's like the whole Lindelof thing you start going oh what if this is this what if what if that is that it's kind it's kind of begging for it but this episode had so much about eggs and legacy and life and death and all that 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 kind of thing with Cal's speech um felt fairly unified to me um, on the note about um, God and stuff, Nate, you mentioned that it doesn't feel like there's been much, uh, many religious elements in the show so far, and um, it strikes me that um, obviously the whole thing with Doctor Manhattan is that he's kind of a god figure, and between him and the squid, yeah, yeah as we've said, this idea of sort of belief has sort of been shattered slightly. But it does mm-hmm. strike me that Manhattan seems to still be serving the role of a quasi-god figure to some people because we saw in episode 3 mm-hmm. that you have these you know, confessional yeah, things where you can kind of you can, yeah you can tell yourself you're talking to Dr. Manhattan and, and such so um, so uh, it seems to me like there's possibly uh, not necessarily religious but spiritual or cosmic element that, to the show that hasn't quite come to the fore yet but it might do later on because that seems to be hanging over everything this idea of you know what's going on with Dr. Manhattan well I see. the answer to life's mysteries is life's histories yeah, a lot of stuff about generations and yeah. legacy in this episode. Yeah, and I think that the little scene of exposition where they explained uh, the whole backstory with the comedian and all that, uh, I thought that that was really interesting because for how fundamental Dr. Manhattan is to this whole universe and the worldview of everyone in it, I was really surprised to hear that Angela didn't know, didn't seem to know immediately who uh, Silk Spectre was. I, I liked that. I thought that was an interesting world-building thing. Like, you see Rorschach and Dr. Manhattan have persisted because Rorschach became a huge cult conspiracy figure and Dr. Manhattan's like God. But all, like, the crime busters were never an actual group in the 80s. You know, they had that one meeting. Yeah. But they, it was only Rorschach and Night Owl that worked together. They were never actually a group. The Minutemen did some group things, but, you know, this was in the 1940s. And I, I feel yeah. like, um, apart from the current current TV show, I think a lot of it would um absolutely just filter away. And it's kind of, it's interesting to see these things that are so central to the comic. Just, why would this matter in Oklahoma, you know, in 2019? I, I, I quite like that. Yeah. Yeah. What surprised me with that scene um, in the car is that um, uh, 
Laurie asked Peter to explain sort of what her trauma is that kind of made her become a masked vigilante. And they go to the comedian sexually assaulting her mother. And I, what I thought they were going to bring up was the fact that Laurie's mother, Sally, pretty yeah. much imposed the life, the, the vigilante life on her daughter as a way of, you know, um, creating her own legacy or moulding her own sort of, basically moulding her child in her own image. And because that, see- that seemed like it would have been much more in line with other stuff we see around the episode like you know lady whatever lady true's doing to her daughter whatever will's doing to uh, angela there's definitely this um very the whole episode seems to ruminate around this theme of legacy and sort of generational reproductive legacy let's let's phrase it like that it's even, yeah. even when they talk about thermodynamic miracles uh Petey doesn't mention that he kind of buries the lead that it's that uh the still expected the first slept consensually with the comedian later which is you know where, where laurie comes from and even um, even the Adrian Veidt scene was vaguely in line with the, the episode theme this week, which I think it hasn't been in the past, because this time you had Veidt fishing babies out of the lake. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's, I mean, it's there's a baby in the scene, so that connects it to the first scene, I suppose. But, but beyond that, it's... Well, and also the scene in general, it shows Mr. Phillips and Miss Crooksanks sort of as children, sort of at the start of their life cycle, so to speak. But yeah, other than that, it was fairly disconnected from the rest of the ep, as usual. But um, I I loved those little Death Stranding babies. I was <laughs> so fucked up. Do you think there is a more tangible connection between the babies in the lake and the fact that Lady True can evidently oh, grow babies? Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. See, I, feel, I, I don't know. I'm still I'm still open to the possibility that maybe this is all some horrible experiment from Doctor Manhattan or something. Like, I don't know, but that's also possible. I I mean, it seems it seems to me um with Lady True growing babies, right? That seems very calculated, very scientific, a very kind of um delineated and clear process. Whereas having them just sort of grow almost like plants in a lake, where and uh, Vite has to fish them out. That seems there's a weird sort of uh, organicness to that, which it makes it seems kind of messy. And Vite does po- point out himself that there are flaws in the design, like it was sort of a bit like a, a bit a bit like a sort of not quite perfect. Sort the kind of it's someone's approximation of life rather than an actual like clinical attempt to create life there's a weird na- naturality and also a strangeness to it which doesn't speak doesn't sound like lady true to me but yeah you know, i could be wrong yeah, the, the one of the very few things i could see justifying dr manhattan being back in the solar system is that if after at the end of the comic where he sends these off to create life if he was having troubles with that i think adrian Wright is like one of the only humans he'd probably be interested in the opinions of because Adrian is so smart and he's very good at genetic manipulation and stuff so I can kind of see some justification for Manhattan being around but apparently he's been on Mars for 30 years so who knows yeah yeah and I was looking at the the timing with everything because they mentioned in an earlier episode I believe that um, Ozymandias had been missing since 2011 And so if, as this episode established, the pattern continues that um, the one year passes in every episode for fight on Mars or wherever he is, um, then he'll catch up with the present in episode eight. Yeah, which makes sense, like, dramatically. Yeah, yeah. Um, Having said that... um, 
the present, um, the nature of kind of where exactly he will synchronise with the present timeline, that's up for grabs, I think. Um, I saw speculation that the 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 item that crashed down at the start of this episode yeah. might be you know, a capsule that has Vite in it or something. Like, it could be that he... It could be that um, the stuff that happens for Vite that we have not seen yet on Mars might have already happened in terms of the Tulsa timeline. Like, it's it's yeah. not quite synced up in that way, if you see what I mean. For sure. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah, and that's interesting. What do you think it was that crashed? I mean, obviously we have no clue, but... Oh, it's a, it's a birthing matrix from Krypton. <laughs> oh, classic. It's Dr. Makes Manhattan's sense. son. If it's not related to Vite, I don't see, like, how we could even guess, like, what would it even be if it's not something he's catapulting? Actually, uh, that reminds me. Did anybody, when watching that part, get the sense that it was taking place in the past? And that... When I, when I saw it, I thought that maybe the, uh... The... Going by the transition that they had, that... The space where it touched down was the spot where... Uh, Lady True put one of those Manhattan things. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, because of the um, transition shot afterwards. The transition was very, yeah. I don't know, it could have been a time thing, it could have been... And it, and it feels like a character origin scene, which can, you know, don't have to be strictly in the present yeah. continuity. It's just setting up what Lady True's like, who she is. So, yeah, I could see that. I think it's worth remembering that um, her daughter Bian was in that scene, and she didn't look very different, uh, so it can't have been, like, be very many years. I have a theory past. about that. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, and did you notice that the daughter actually, she was in episode two, briefly? Yeah. yeah. With the two Bernards. Yes, I, I named her Bernadette, but that's not her name. Her name <laughs> does start with B, so it's close, but yeah, she, she's still yeah, one of the, but she's an honorary Bernard. Yes, yes. Do we think she's daughter, a clone daughter? What do, yeah. do we think the yeah. deal with her is? Not only a clone daughter, I think there's some sort of preservation thing going on with her sleeping with a, a thing in yeah there's I see two options either she's a clone and she's getting some kind of you know flashbacks to her mother's life or her grandmother's life mm -hmm. or uh, she's more normal but it's the stuff that was in the IV that was giving her the strange dreams could be we do know that in this universe, not only do psychic powers exist, but so does genetic memory. Mm -hmm. So it could be that, I mean, the uh, the Phillips and Cryptshanks uh, are able to walk, yeah. talk, and understand, and they're only a few hours old. So that would imply that they're remembering those skills. I don't know. That's my and theory. You'll note Lady True refers to Will Reeves's memory pills as like a scheme, passive-aggressive exposition. I thought that was a beautiful phrase, passive, because that's kind of a self-aware thing to describe. It's, it's very Lindelof self-awareness, but I think the idea is he doesn't need them. He wants Angela to be curious and take one, because presumably he's embedded his memories or something into them, since that's something that can happen in this world. I can see that. Yeah, that yeah. seems like a, a good bet. See, um, with the daughter, my thinking is less um, an actual clone of Lady True, but possibly a daughter created through uh, stem cell, uh, genetic, you know what I mean, IVF, something like that. Yeah. So, like, um, a daughter Custom created, made. yeah, perhaps even a in Boba that, Fett. yeah, it could be a daughter created without a father, because um, <laughs> Lady True seems to be a sort of a misandrist. She was like, ladies only, when she invited the um, Laurie and Angela to her room. But um, yeah, and I am thinking, I'm on the, I'm on the train of she's 
giving her own memories, her own trauma to her daughter, perhaps through this drug, this process. And I like that, I like the little detail that um, Lady True doesn't even walk Beyond back to bed. And she, when, when Beyond tells her, like, her feet still hurt and stuff, she's like, good. She wants it to hurt, like, she wants this, she wants this pain and kind of this kind of damaging learning experience to kind of yeah. filter through. And it, it strikes me that the theme isn't just uh, generational legacy, so to speak, but parents passing down their own trauma and their own problems to to future mm. generations because that links everything together the idea of how a trauma can pass through and kind of keep lingering long after it's been you know committed like you said the other week about the uh, uh quantum view of justice yeah generational view of time i think that uh i think i think you're right there's and plus that would make more sense of pd alighting the actual personal reason why the genuine personal yeah. trauma for uh, uh Ms. Blake. Ms. Blake, sorry. Speaking of justice, I think this idea Gig touched on about a child without a father, or, you know, a child that can genetically be made, you know, needing only one participant of a couple. I hope this uh, comes to the fore, because with Will Reeves presumably being hooded justice and being, you know, paternally related to Angela... Oh, super obvious, yeah. Hooded justice is gay in the comic, and the show doesn't really seem to have any gay characters around so I really hope they're not, they're not you know just changing his sexuality or something yeah. so I watch. hope it's a genetic thing that you know maybe um, Hooded Justice having children was well I guess this Lady True is probably too young but I hope that it's some kind of genetic thing and not that he just you know married a woman and had kids straightly that a marriage happened. of convenience perhaps that was not uncommon and I mean yeah. it would not be by far the least problematic uh, it would by far not be the least problematic. Uh, fuck, I <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. Be, I agree. It would by far not be the most problematic uh, family tree in this story so no, far. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. It just sticks out to me weirdly because the comic is so full of um, sexuality and you know, um, gay characters and all this kind of thing that it's it, yeah. It feels weird for the show to not be having that. So, I don't know. I've got I've got my um, eyes out basically. Yeah, we, we even found out this week that um, Wade, a looking glasses ex, is a she as well. So that, that verged me because I was holding out hope for Wade to be the gay one in the cast. That doesn't seem to happen. So yeah, we'll, we'll find out more at some point. Type. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I think we're going to. I think hopefully we're going to find out anything else we're going to find out about looking glass next week because I just have a feeling, you know? Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, it just strikes me with two Americans here. I've got to ask, what did you think of Veidt's pronunciation of "I am your master"? It was, yeah, it was, it was just a, it was a really pronounced American attempt to say like "master." Um, it contrasted with his regular accent. Uh, interestingly, I've never really had a problem with uh, Irons as Veidt, simply because Veidt having a weird accent is something that I guess everybody's oh, decided is canon. Yeah, like that was yeah. a major part it just of makes the sense. performance. Yeah, well, um, there are some details about this show's version of Vite, though. Neo, well, I know you were very unhappy with something Vite is shown to have done <laughs> in this episode, as you uh, elabed to me last night, so go on. What it is, is it's the pattern. I like the odd-numbered episodes treatment of Vite, because I really liked the Vite scenes in episode one and three, and I really got annoyed <laughs> by the ones in episode two and four. Um, <laughs> what, what it was, was um, I, I liked most of the stuff, the babies and all that. Like, this was all implied, so there's a little... um. 
when, when you unveil the mystery, there's always a little lessening, I think. But it was cool and it was abstract, the babies and all that stuff. I liked all that. But when we go to the scene where it's all, there's like 30 clones that he's, you know, stabbed all of them and he goes, oh, I had, I had a rough night or something like that. It's just, I feel like all the things interesting about this character in the comic don't connect at all to him just being like a loony psychopath stabbing people and i get that excuse me i i wait I hold on are we talking about adrian don't kid yourself squid yourself fight look are we talking about i uh, every night i dream i'm swimming towards something massive fight yeah. <laughs> we're talking says- about the guy who killed off all of his scientists and all of his artists with he didn't dynamite take- he didn't stab out a window. He didn't viscerally stab anyone. He didn't take joy. Well, apart from maybe his crime-fighting activities, but he was, was super his... stoked when he caught a bullet with his bare hands. Yeah, so... that's, that's that's protecting himself. He never seemed the type to like go Jack the Ripper and oh, like. He... Are you? <laughs> but I feel like we're not going to agree on this topic. I feel like it's a very yeah. uninteresting version of Vite to do, and I feel like. I get how you can get the character there, like, oh, he's been in prison for a while, it's been decades since he did that big event that's gonna screw up his mind, but I'm just not that <laughs> interested in a Vite that just goes around, like, randomly stabbing people and, you know, being fine with it. I don't think that's interesting. Like, he's more dispassionate. I would never have burdened pathetic creatures with the gift of life. You need purpose to be alive. That's interesting. Him valuing their lives not at all is interesting. Him just like stabbing them like he's a serial killer I, I don't find that interesting I find just that kind of a lame way to make the Vite scenes weird and creepy it, it w- wasn't working for me mm, that's fair I also noticed that he seems to have the game warden's corpse there too yeah, so that I confirms that, that the game. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I'm not sure about that. I think it, it might just be like the horse. Um, not the not the game warden, but you might recall. Um, uh, in an oh, yeah, episode, that's right. It might be Montrose, the guy who yeah. uh, looks after the horses. It might be that guy. Because I know he had the hat on, but I'm not sure. I don't think it's the game warden, in my opinion. I think there's I think that, two that of be... them there, which is what made me think it. Well, maybe, but I just I don't think they kill the game warden off screen. I think it's, it's they, they they flagged that up <laughs> as really critical. important last time, and I think that's yeah. going to be important again. Yeah, I think we'll see him next week. Yeah, warden. quite possibly. Regarding the massacre, um, it strikes me that yeah, I do basically agree. It's not a very vitey thing to do, but nonetheless, I um, I I don't I sort of t- I sort of took it in stride because Vite isn't the sort of character where you know it's certainly uh, this this version of him where if he does one thing, that's that's the I take that as the direction of his character. Like I'm not like oh he's the Jack the Ripper psychopath now he's going to go around stabbing everyone. Rather, it's it's more like I wouldn't put anything past him. Like this is a guy who earlier yeah. on in his life decided he's going to become Alexander the Great and dedicated his life to doing this whole project and does so many strange and kind of bizarre things. It's almost like if you put him in a corner like he is now, it's kind of, he could do anything and I wouldn't necessarily suggest that's his that's his direction now. It could just be, you know, it's... He, you know, it's. I think it's entirely possible he might just lash out at one point. And I think his his apathy towards that act, I think, is informed by the fact that he simply just does not really value these clones' lives at all. And I don't think he really sees much of a, uh, a like emotional like value to it one way or the other. I don't think he takes particular pleasure in killing them. I don't think he. But I don't think he's particularly horrified by the act either. I think sometimes maybe he just really needed to take his stress out and just wanted to try it. I think yeah, it didn't really. I don't think it was amazing, but it didn't really bug me either. What you need to understand, Gig and Neo, is that he made himself feel all of their deaths months ago. <laughs> this has been a long time coming. 
Oh, just on that note of the months ago thing, did you like when Lady True did the um, trademark uh, Ozymandias move in the first scene? Where she's like, I made your baby 35 minutes ago. I'm not some yeah. Republic yeah, serial. Was, yeah, yeah, that was, that was so good. Dude, you notice the um, reference to Lost uh, with, um, you know, Will Reeves not needing the wheelchair? Didn't that also happen in Leftovers? I forgot about that. Every wow. Lost show has this key scene of someone getting up out of a wheelchair. That is almost Moffat level repeating yourself, isn't it? Like <laughs> it's crazy. That 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 will and uh, true scene wasn't working for me great either. Just like they're like Bian goes to bed, and so Will and True are alone, and yet they're still talking in super vague terms about their yeah. plans. Yeah, it feels yeah. very written for TV. Like why mm. why don't you just say what your plan is? Why aren't you talking directly? On to the each other hand, other? earlier they had. Uh, Vite speaking in I'm now going to describe my plan in great detail because True. Yeah, that was so it, it was the thing is, the whole explaining your plan monologue, um, I'd say I it's a bit more believable for Vite because, you know, obviously yeah. he's somewhat notorious for giving one of the quintessential <laughs> monologues in the yeah. original comic. So I can buy that he might narrate his actions to his uh, any any captive audience that's present. But yeah, the the Will and Lady True stuff, it was a bit it was a bit too um sort of we're gonna say some mysterious spooky stuff. Um I yeah. Will seems like a matter-of-fact, like, down-to-earth character, so I don't see why he would I feel agree. the need to be so, ooh, mysterious, portents, you know, let's talk around things. Yeah, I understand that uh, they needed to have some kind of conversation in order to have a good ending to the uh, episode, and just the reveal that he was there is completely undercut by, um, you know, the previous uh, quote in Vietnamese, which I thought was a really nice uh, yeah. touch to cap off that scene. That was great. Yeah, but um, yeah, not 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 a fan. I look forward to just getting the answers. So I'm watching the loop man scene uh, on a constant loop over and over <laughs> so again. Good. Uh, I have been ever since uh, I stopped watching the episode. And <laughs> two things: one, I noticed a cute little uh, world building detail that uh, the um, the car place they run through uh, has easy financing for electro refitting. Yeah. Which is a great historical detail from the comic. Also, the other thing I noticed is he is impressively well endowed. Because that suit does not hide a single thing. So, That's you know what? Maybe the leftovers. It's Petey. I think it is Petey. Oh, maybe Ooh. it's. Maybe it's Dr. Manhattan. We can see that possibility. I think what I should clarify is I think that Petey is Osterman. Ergo, it is Manhattan. I see. Got it. Yeah. Really, I think everyone is Manhattan. And they're all in purgatory. Well, uh, the everyone is Manhattan idea. That's, that's, I'm not a fan, but it's getting some traction. I know Gig is more of a fan of that than me. Uh, it's sort of um, uh, less that uh, everyone is Manhattan, but more that perhaps everything is Manhattan. I, I think it's it could be that um, in his attempt to create life, rather than just some shitty little biodome on Mars, maybe Manhattan decided to simulate an entire universe. So, and that's where this um, that's where this Earth oh. is taking place. So oh, everyone is so he's, technically Manhattan. He's the basilisk. Yeah, if you like. <laughs> oh my God. That actually ties in really well with something I was going to predict about where this is all going. But uh, go ahead, Pete. Oh, I just think that that would tie in with the squid. 
obviously he has created a universe where the uh, squid attack did actually happen and that's why there's the recurring rainfalls and oh. yeah oh wait so you're thinking that this is all him simulating what would happen so as to convince fight not to do it oh well that would that would just be too yeah totally yeah that let's go be, with that. that's maybe yeah. one iteration too many for me <laughs> i mean well, but if I, if, I think it would be if very the loft really wants to go whole 10 yards, that's where you gotta go. And he yeah. did say, uh, if you don't like my story, write your own, so. Uh, yeah. It does make me wonder if time travel will come into it. I've seen some speculation I'm that. Um, I've seen some speculation that Lady True's big, long, firm, yeah. rather impressive clock could actually be some sort of time machine device. I mean, they say it tells time. That could be. Because otherwise, what is it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It could be a giant red herring, maybe it's just a clock, like, I don't know. I, 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 I worry, I know the, um, comic has, you know, psychics and stuff, much to my distaste, but I worry, like, you can go too sci-fi with Watchmen, I think. Like, I think time mm -hmm. travel's pushing it a bit. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I, I do I think, think the show might be doing it, I just mean I might not like that the show is doing it. Okay. Um, I feel like... The thing with, um... For, for, from, from, from both directions, I think. One... Uh, yeah, this may be a little too tinfoily to say out loud on the podcast. Come, come, come on, come on. I'm not too sure that there aren't psychics in reality anyway, oh, so boy. I don't see psychics as super sci-fi. But more importantly, uh, time travel, that's sort of implicit with Manhattan. I think that this may be some sort of intrinsic field. Is it? It's, I wouldn't, it's, not, it's not time travel, you know, it's time experience. Awareness. Yeah. Yeah. Manhattan has. yeah, there's a crucial distinction there, I think, between time travel as we see it in your average, in Doctor Who or some average uh, sci-fi mm -hmm. story, where, where a person can kind of hop in a capsule and go back to the past or whatever, and time yeah. travel time travel as phrased in the Watchmaker chapter of the comic, whereby Manhattan's perception can kind of look over the whole timeline pretty much at any point, like, because he exists almost outside of time. That's not quite the same thing as yeah. travel, but it does suggest, like, a de-sequencing of uh, experience. I think, I think if they, I think if Lindelof is savvy, he'll be looking at that latter idea of time rather than the former sort of Doctor Who idea of time. And if he isn't, he might do it before Watchmen did and have Manhattan just actually time travel. Oh, okay. I have it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that if I don't know if anyone uh, has seen or is watching uh, Mr. Robot, but nobody. Lady, Lady Trap. Well, okay, Lady True's uh, clock would be the exact same as a plot line there that people have long speculated is related to time travel. So. Frank, Mr. That, Robot? That, that, show, that show also has a very mysterious um, uh, Asian billionaire figure, doesn't it? Who's got this mysterious yes, device. Exactly. With, yeah. a, with a mysterious project in the Congo or America or wherever that people think is time travel, but I hope that neither show goes in that direction. So I look forward to being disappointed in probably both cases. <laughs> Yeah, mm -hmm. Speaking of time travel, just a weird little stylistic touch in this episode. Do you notice it had like a straight flashback to the previous episodes, like Rorschach, a uh, masked person at the funeral thing? Like it was like one second of uh, yeah. direct footage, yeah. like I not in the previous one, like in the middle of the episode. I thought that was I think it's, weird. I think it's supposed to be like a PTSD thing because yeah, like a flashback. Comes up and, yeah, it's not a flashback in the storytelling sense, but in the uh, survivor sense. I thought it was, it was, it was fine because you know certainly because um, I liked it was about, brutal. It's yeah, just, 
Yeah, that, that's that's the point, because certainly um, with that whole conversation with Angela and Topher, something they've reminded us with Topher, actually, is that he has a similar kind of trauma to Angela, and that they're sort of bonding over this sort of this constant brutality that they're always suffering. So, yeah, I think just showing a brief clip of the, the headshot there, I think I didn't really register it, but I think I thought it was fine. It didn't break the show too much. Well, in, in general, I um, I really liked the direction for this episode way more than episode three's direction. Um, this wasn't the main director, Nicole Cassell, again, but... The, whoever this director was um, was really hooked into her style we got like an absolute surfeit of split dive the shots so many those are clearly like the show's thing at this point as well as the really hard on uh, it's not good phrasing as well as the really <laughs> noticeable um, match cuts like Entridge with the waffle maker correct. to outside with the car boot um, so the show really having its own visual identity was what do know, we think about a the fair play shot? I was think it's um was it like, too much? Obviously, it... it's so, like, ostentatious that it seems to actually le legit suggest he's on the moon, but I don't think that's what they yeah. want to suggest, so I think it might have been a little much. I don't, yeah, I don't know if it was supposed to be a red herring or if it's supposed to be a foreshadowing. It was just a really odd shot. I liked it, but uh, I think it it's seems a red to be implying herring. something. If it's a red herring, I think it's a little over... Uh, yeah. There were a few transitions that were a little hard to read like that, like the moon, and then we already talked about how the farm turned into the uh, the parking lot with the Manhattan booth. So, yeah. I think it's or the uh, pill bottle turning into the bed. That was yeah, I, li I liked that. <laughs> that was great. I don't know what it's implying, but it was great. <laughs> With, um, with stuff like the moon, um, it reminds me of how, in the comic, a lot of the time, stuff would be visually paralleled, even if there was not necessarily a a real solid uh, connection to stuff. I think I think something that's nice with the comic is that th parallels are allowed to sit without screaming at you that they have to kind of mean something all the time. And some of them obviously do mean a lot, but some of them don't. So it's more mm -hmm. like it's uh, a general style that suggests that everything is connected, even if those connections are not explicit or literal so i i kind of don't mind when they just do really brazen on the nose stuff like the the pill bottle into the bed or the telescope into the moon or whatever like it's just it's a nice way of having each scene just sort of connect to the next one and having the whole thing feel very complete and unified mm -hmm. so speaking of brazen oh i don't know how brazen this reads to some people but we got another song right from the comic um this week with you're my thrill which in the comic plays when dan and laurie uh, rescue people from a burning building. Uh, like Dan literally plays it on the owl ship to what the people to enjoy. <laughs> yeah, there were a few callbacks to the comic this episode. I saw some people talking online. I didn't pick up on this myself, of course, but some people were talking about the book that the uh, lady oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. was reading at the very start. Yeah. Yeah, I had to look that up because it sounded familiar and turned out that I knew it from somewhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, it's not as uh, comic reference heavy as last episode, but mm. there were still some tidbits. The, the comic references were all in this week's PDpedia, the um, extended material on HBO's website, which oh, was yeah? full of stuff uh, for this week. Anything so good? it was, it was, um, uh, it was from 1995 when Dan and Laurie you know, in this time between the comic and the show that the show is filling in, Dan and Laurie got arrested, foiling the... I hear this was an actual, like, American terrorist yeah, attack that's yeah, famous, the Oklahoma... Um, oh, shit, they got McVeigh? 
Yeah, yeah. Awesome. this was McVeigh. Oh, they got wow. him. They stopped. They stopped the attack. Okay. So that's yeah. and that was the incident that got them captured. Actually, that's the one that I talked about on years and years <laughs> the other yeah. time. Oh, nice. So Dan and Laurie foiled him uh, before that all happened, but the police caught Dan and Laurie. Um, Dan refused to talk. He only said, "Never compromise, never surrender," <laughs> and then he, just, he did not say a word. Whereas Laurie, um, like very sardonically, but she talked, and she talked enough that you know she's an FBI agent now. She got out fine. Whereas Dan's still in prison, serving a thirty-year sentence. But anyway, at this time, Dan and Laurie had broken up, and as a you know last fuck you to Laurie when they were breaking up. Because, um, you know, Dan was always a bit insecure about Dr. Manhattan being her ex. Dan made the dildo uh, <laughs> to, give to, to, to give to Laurie as like an FU. And so we also get the blueprints for the dildo in the um, PDPDO material oh, wow. this week with yeah, Dan's handwriting. You see all the insides of it. You see all the little different components it has, like yeah. the electro-whatever resonator. <laughs> it's mad. Yeah, that was the first one I opened by accident. I just saw this huge dick. <laughs> at me. I was like, what the fuck is going sure, on? Sure, by accident. It sounded like Dan and Laurie had been superheroing around together for a while um, after the events of the original comic. Dan also founded um, an organization, Merlin Corps, um, with which he started making owlships to supply to the police and other stuff to supply to the police. I'm not quite sure how all this worked because that's like really obviously Dan Dryberg, who I assume would have been wanted uh, but mm-hmm. maybe the police didn't put it together that this new superhero I, I don't know if he assumed a new f- name like um, Laurie did calling herself the comedian instead of Silk Spectre but so Dan and Laurie happily superheroed and were like together for a while and then it sounds like they were getting on and off again on and off again while still sometimes doing superheroics together but not being you know, so, no, so much lovers anymore um, and Laurie in this like um, in this court not caught in this like it's a, yeah, it's interrogation basically. yeah interrogation transcript um she says dan wanted kids whereas laurie just wanted to keep on superheroing um you know eventually mm-hmm. that ended in the dildo and they were doing one last job together laurie actually describes it like a kind of um wild westy romantic one last job was foiling the mm-hmm. oklahoma bombing and yeah so that was you know maybe the most like direct um Law drop, I think we've had yet on the PDPDs. I thought that was really interesting. I would have liked to seen that realized, even. Yeah. Well, I know that part of it is that they don't want to recast Patrick Wilson. Which yeah. I think is misguided. Mm-hmm. I think. Really? I just bring it back. But yeah, I think. It... In, well, in the show's timeline, because Dan got 30 years in 1995. Yeah. So, like, if season two, it wouldn't even have to be set a decade later to get Dan out of prison assuming he doesn't get out earlier like it's like well like six years later in the show's timeline dan is meant to be out of prison anyway so if they do a season two um and you know the show's established its own identity at this point i think and dan's you know decades older i think it would be okay to cast a dan that isn't patrick wilson much as i loved his dan at this point but on the other hand patrick wilson can just kind of look any age so yeah that's true yeah i've yeah uh, but I assume season two, if it even gets made, remember Lindelof said he'd only do this if he had a great idea or someone else had a great idea, and that doesn't seem to have happened yet. I feel like we'll probably <coughs> lean away more from the comic, um, but, you know, who knows. Yeah. Speaking of Dan Dryberg, I've noticed that, uh, uh, what's her name, the uh, daughter of uh, Lady True is wearing... I, I've just been staring at her glasses, and they've been reminding me more and more of Dryberg's glasses and his owl ship. Oh yeah, 
It's funny seeing the um the shadows of these characters. You know, Rorschach, obviously the Seventh Cavalry, Dan in the cops and in Bean's um, glasses, uh, Ozzy Mandius in the Squids, Manhattan in everything. Yeah. Um, were there other crime busters? Mothman in the Mothmen paparazzi. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Captain and Metropolis. Uh, Captain in, um... Metropolis, who's never appeared anywhere, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. The movie even cut him out of the Crime Buster meeting, even though that was yeah. his whole what? idea. I'd totally yeah. forgotten, too. Why would they do that? <laughs> because he's not, in the, he's not in the story. Oh, my God. Yeah, um, it struck me that um, the whole legacy theme that you were talking about earlier, that even connects to the, um, the 7th Cavalry and stuff, because it came up in an earlier week that the KKK robe may very well have belonged to Judd's grandfather, and Judd's grandfather got that letter from Senator Joaquin Senior transferring the respon yeah Akia transferring the responsibility of you know uh, KKK uh, whatever supreme leader or whatever it is to him. So it's a bit yeah. like in the same sense that we see um, characters from Vietnam and Tulsa passing their trauma down to the generations. We've got the these KKK members passing their their evil almost onto the next generation. It's it's kind of how these these kind of dark kind of cults and stuff kind of sustain themselves through their reproduction. It's, yeah. It's a very Alan Moore thing. Like, this is very from hell and Jerusalem to be doing this kind of um, interconnectivity of generations and things not being, like, discrete. Like, it might be easier to imagine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah do we think we'll see a connection between the, uh, the Tulsa riots that we saw in the first episode and, like, will we see it from the perspective of the ancestor of Judd? Uh, there's an idea. Um, I'm not sure. Feel I'm not even sure it. we'll see it Feel again. Free to use it, like, off. Yeah. <laughs> it might be a bit weird to show it from the perspective of the people committing yeah, the massacre. Like a, a pro KKK. <laughs> On the other, it yeah. was also pretty weird the way that they have KKK members at the uh, cultural center. I thought that was uh-huh. yeah. maybe a bit tone deaf. On the yeah. part of the in-universe people. <laughs> What did you think of Looking Glass, you know, in response to Angela asking if he thought the chief was a racist, how he just goes, he was a white man in Oklahoma? Including himself in that, I noticed. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Where was his bunker? Like, I felt like visually it was trying to tell me. It's in his backyard. backyard? Yeah, that's where, uh, because this is Oklahoma, Tornado Alley, uh, uh, pretty much everyone there has uh, tornado bunkers. I think Neo's point is that... the editing made it seem almost like the bunker could be in Angela's backyard because she went out of her yeah. house yeah. and then she was immediately there. I was feel like this yeah. is really like the economics theme of you know, um, you know, the descendants of the Tulsa massacre having the tax exemptions and you know the these white people in Nixonville. I was wondering, Christ is like Looking Glass literally in a bunker in Sister Night's backyard? <laughs> like that's pretty intense. It would be no, kind but- of cute if they lived together. To be honest, yeah. but I don't think that's what's going on. I think, actually, you, you touched on something there. She lives in a nice house in the suburbs. Uh, his place looks fairly big, but it's also, like, it seems to be way out in the boonies. So yeah, well, there yeah, might be something yeah. there. He's just... That tax exemption has got to add up um, over the years, for sure. Mm-hmm. So the, that was clarified as well. The reparations, it isn't like a like lump sum handout or anything. It's a yeah, lifetime tax exemption. It's not a Yang Gang exemption. kind of 1,000 bucks. No, <laughs> you're not getting money. You're not having to pay. Um, certain money is more what it is. 
random thing. Um, what do you guys think of Angela accidentally... Well, I say accidentally. She was going to do it deliberately, but she burned that propaganda flyer that Will sad. kind of gave to her. Yeah, I was sad about that. I wonder if it's symbolic of her maybe going to detach herself from Will's legacy in some way in the future. I thought, Cause I thought it strikes Lindelof in the comic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it strikes me in, in another way that Angela's kind of detached from uh, some of the other characters and the other messages here is that um, Lady True insists that legacy is in blood and not in land. Angela's yeah. children aren't hers. She's adopted them from someone else. Mm -hmm. So she's not, she, doesn't have, she doesn't have a blood link to her children either. So it strikes me that maybe her arc is going to be repudiating some of these narratives about legacy and reproduction. You know, in, in the comic, the two Silk Spectres were related by blood. The two Night Owls weren't. Uh, yeah, I've, I've got nothing also, to do on that. Well, I, <laughs> no, it's good. the way I see the thing with burning the letters, and again, because it's at times surprising how much this directly parallels the comic, is that this mm -hmm. is about the point in that story where uh, Dan gets rid of the uh, uh, comedian's button. So I'm guessing it, it's one of those things where the time yeah. of that... Uh, uh, MacGuffin has passed. Now we're on to the bigger mystery. I do, I do miss in the comic how everything's centralized through Rorschach's investigation. I've, that lent a lot of um coherency to how you know far-spanning all the flashbacks and the playing around with time and all the narratives going on in the original comic are. It's easy, like I, I think it's awkward to describe Rorschach as the protagonist because it's not really that kind of story, the comic, but. It's easy to wrap your head around all the many things going on in the comic as it relates to his investigation. I don't know if it's necessarily a bad thing, but the show really, I think, lacks that. Even with the Chief's death and everything, like, there still has no connection to certain subplots that are going on. Yeah, and there are so many things, even in this episode, that, like, why were they investigating the car? Was it ever explained why... I mean, it's obvious that, um, that Silk Spectre has some kind of better idea about the grandfather and that whole side of the story than she's letting on to me at least but the i mean why were they interested in the car they, she um, laurie did give kind of a, a, a an explanation for why they're investigating the car it disappeared the same night of dud's death and it was returned the night of his funeral oh. so it's kind of it's a bit too much of a thermodynamic miracle so to speak for it all to be a total coincidence but um yeah yeah no i do plus i think I, she knows yeah, and um, another, I think it's it's believable that any really bizarrely suspicious event surrounding the death would be folded into the FBI investigation. Like, they want to know what's going on. You've also got a racist cult in the town. Like, anything could be mm -hmm. a clue. So I think it's fair enough that they're investigating the car. But um, nonetheless, I do think... Um, Plus, whereas... it literally dropped out of the air in front of an FBI officer. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that too. Um, where Rorschach's investigation was sort of the spine, he was kind of an anchor for the story in the comic. With this, with the show, it's sort of, it's a bit, uh, because they've got an actual full-on police department investigating the uh, the case in this case, and because obviously they're professionals and they know what they're doing, it's a bit less. There's a bit less of an adventure to solving the the crime. So to yes. speak. it's more it's more in the background. It's a bit like there's a yeah. kind of a there's a police procedural going on somewhere, but we're more interested in what's going on in the outskirts of that. And I think key to that is the fact that Angela seems to fundamentally mistrust the police force that she is a part of because she refuses to let any of the stuff that she's privy to on to the police. Like she's throwing away all the evidence. She's cleaning 
hiding everything. She's kept Will a total secret to the best of her ability. And it seems like she does not want any of this to get out to the police force. And I've been wondering, why is that? Because she's supposed to be on their side. But it seems like she's really, she really does not want that to get out. Like, she's, she wants to keep it all to herself. And I wonder if, does that fundamental mistrust of the, the police force stem out of kind of her perspective on what they're doing and just how they operate? I, I was just seeing it as initially she didn't want to um, bring in Will Reeves because, you know, that was a really odd thing that happened and she was investigating that on her own. But then she felt like culpability as things began to spiral out and so she's just mm-hmm. covering her tracks. But that's an interesting idea that it's more rooted in a mistrust of the actual force. Yeah. Which would be in keeping with what's been going on with her sort of history so far as we've seen it. Like the white, her being one of the few survivors of the White Knight, for example. Now I think about it, she found out that Judd, the police chief, was you know, had a KKK robe. So why would she? Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, any, anyone else could yeah. be in on it at this point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Speaking of the police, I'm kind of sad we haven't had more stuff of um, Red Scare and Pirate Jenny because they're funny. But they're I feel like they're I just like going to be side characters. I'm positive. So does anybody, for a second, believe that Red Scare is actually Russian? No. 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 Yeah. yeah. Of course not. <laughs> but I love. I assume he just puts the accent on. Um, of course. With, with the mask. Because I mean, otherwise, you know, people aren't going to notice the one Eastern European guy in Tulsa. <laughs> <laughs> Are all the other masked like hero um, cops so lo- not like the grunts, the ones with the cool costumes? Are they all white except for Sister Knight, Pirate Jenny, Red Sk- Ah Panda? Right. Although I don't get the sense he um. I mean, maybe he, he goes out on missions. Yeah, he doesn't no, seem very he's hero. He's a desk sergeant. Yeah, he's a mascot, more like. And that's. I wish that we could have. Him. I wish we could have Panda come back for an episode. Yeah. A panda, a panda-centric episode, even. Yeah. I wouldn't. I great. wouldn't even mind if they did it like if they did him like Moloch, you know. <laughs> if he's if he's only in it to die, but it's still like a central deal. He, he can get a before Panda, you know. Yeah, before. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he can get two <laughs> issues of it. <laughs> Two more things. Uh, number one, um, the centrifuge that Vite uses to uh, grow the babies strikes me as more steampunk than anything in the currently ongoing adaptation of his Dark Materials. And yep. two, <laughs> the um, the amount of the amount of egg foreshadowing and the kind of recurring egg motif just strikes me that it's um, Series Seven A of Doctor Who all over again because that had <laughs> the egg arc going on. Yeah. So it's that's it's actually happening. going somewhere this time. 